Welcome to Cinema Talk, the official podcast of the UW Cinematheque. From Madison, Wisconsin, this is Jim Healy, Director of Programming for the Cinematheque and the Wisconsin Film Festival. July 2020 marks 40 years since the death of the brilliant actor and comedian Peter Sellers. And beginning July 16th, the Cinematheque is offering a pair of movies to watch at home that we have packaged as Peter Sellers' Lost and Found. First among the two selections is a recent documentary from veteran director Peter Madak, entitled The Ghost of Peter Sellers. Madak's movie chronicles the disastrous production and aftermath of Ghost in the Noonday Sun, a 1973 pirate comedy directed by Madak and starring Sellers that was never given a theatrical release. As a bonus, we are also offering a new restoration of the one feature film that Peter Sellers directed, 1961's Mr. Topaz, a British production starring Sellers and an adaptation of a play by Marcel Pagnol that was released in the U.S. under the title I Like Money. Unseen for decades, the one surviving print of Mr. Topaz held by the British Film Institute has been digitally restored and color corrected and can now be discovered by Sellers fans. The Cinematheque has a limited number of opportunities to view both The Ghost of Peter Sellers and Mr. Topaz at home for free. To receive access, simply send an email to info at cinema.wisc.edu that contains the word Sellers in the subject line. That's info at cinema.wisc.edu and remember to write Sellers in the subject line. This week on Cinema Talk, I'll be talking about these two movies and the career of Peter Sellers with my colleague, Cinematech and Wisconsin Film Festival programmer, Ben Reiser. Ben, say hi. Hi, everybody. So, uh, I was thinking about lopping in or throwing in the ghost of Peter Sellers with uh, movies about unfinished movies. You know, documentaries that take footage from uncompleted films and tell the story of their making and unmaking. Right. Sometimes incorporating the footage shot. So like Orson Welles' It's All True. Right. Uh, which took his uh, uh, South American uh, omnibus film and used the footage that was shot and told the story of its making and unmaking. Uh, Henri-Georges Clouseau's Inferno. Hmm. Uh, which uses a bit of uh, Romy Schneider footage that was shot for this unfinished Cluzo film. Cluzo, interestingly enough, <laughs> talking about Peter Sellers. Yeah. And uh, and then sometimes these, these are movies in cases where cameras never rolled, like Hodorowsky's Dune. Right. Um, but in fact, Ghost in the Noonday Sun is a very much a completed film. It was just deemed unreleasable. Uh, in its time, did you? I, I was able to watch it. Did you? Did you get a chance to look I at any did. of it? I did. I started to watch it, and I kept checking the time code on the uh, <laughs> on the thing because I could not believe how long this opening, this silent movie opening, goes on for. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, and and it's. I watched the whole thing, and it's in my mind. No worse than a lot of Sellers films from from this era, um, and and it's it looks good. It's polished. It has you know the silent film opening. It ha- uses a cinematic language, 
and there's the there's the collaboration between Sellers and Spike Milligan, and they're doing all their kind of physical stuff sure. and muttering under their breaths. And there's always an attempt to inject something whimsical or humorous in a situation, but it just always falls flat. Uh, it's based on a children's book, which I remember reading actually, and not really liking the book very much either. Uh, when I read it in the early '80s, but uh, it, but it, it it the story is just not it's just not compelling at all. No, and it's interesting after watching uh, the documentary, the Peter Medak's documentary about the making. Yes, we're talking about Ghost Ghost in the Noonday Sun. The documentary is the Ghost of Peter Sellers. So. Right, and Ghost in the Noonday Sun is a great title, but not for a pirate comedy. Like I think that would have been a terrific horror movie in the 70s or something you know suspense yeah or like uh, a whimsical comedy like uh, ghost and mrs muir or right ghost and mr chicken <laughs> or a patricia highsmith adaptation like uh, right, right, right it right. feels like one of those movies um but i but was interesting even watching the documentary and then watching ghost in the new day noonday sun after the documentary that despite uh, all of the hijinks and nightmarish situation that went on on set and after production. Um, yeah, it's not good and it's not funny, but Peter Sellers, Sellers is certainly giving a, a typically committed performance. Right, right. Madex complaints aren't really about his performance. Um, it's about his kind of destructive, often passive-aggressive behavior in just trying to disrupt the filming and and possibly even get it get the production shut down so he could walk away from it so you know he never really says it sorry go ahead well i was just gonna um ask you 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 know despite seller's reputation not only through this documentary but certainly things we've been reading about for years and hearing about as being incredibly difficult and being, you know, clinically depressed and sort of perhaps bipolar or whatever it was that he, all the problems that he had. I did notice in sort of taking, um, I, I don't, it's, I didn't, I wasn't able to take a deep dive into Peter Sellers filmography, but a medium dive. It's fun to see how many people, how many collaborators he held on to over the course of his career. There were a, a bunch of actors who were always featured in his films, you know, not just in the Pink Panther series, but, you know, throughout, you know, Herbert Long included, um, and, and directors and writers who continue to work with him. So it made me wonder, is it just a case of his talent being so immense that people were willing to work with him despite how difficult it was or is some of this stuff overblown and was and and was he was he actually capable of being a uh a non-destructive collaborator throughout the years yeah i think it's probably a little of both depending on who you talk to you know an actor like herbert lom i was just reading when he was talking about the making of mr topaz says that you know working with him on that film as director and co-star, more as co-star because he found him to be a fairly hands-off as a director, was completely pleasant and charming. And I believe they held that kind of relationship 
all the way through the last Pink Panther movie they did, which was just two years before Peter Sellers' death. And and but and if you talk to someone like uh, Blake Edwards, uh, the relationship who had his own problems with depression and and uh, you know his own his own personality issues, which made him sometimes difficult to work with. Their relationship started great in the '60s, with uh, the in the Pink the first two Clouseau films, and then The Party, which I think represents the pinnacle of both of their talents. Um, then they they reunited for three more Pink Panther films in the '70s, and the relationship deteriorated with each one. But both of both of their careers at that time in the '70s were you know were, were having uh, difficulty. So you know Edwards had a bunch of kind of uh, notorious expensive bombs like Darling Lily and and Wild Rovers, which I. I think are both good films, um, but uh, they, he was in you know movie jail, and the way out was to do another Pink Panther film, and it was the same for Sellers because um, he uh, was had made I think four movies that were completely unreleased. Uh, this uh, Ghost in the Noonday Sun, a movie called Hoffman. Uh, a film called A Day at the Beach, which was a Roman Polanski production. And I think there was one more, or at least, you know, not seen outside of Britain or something like that. And and so to do to do the Pink Panther movie, you know, meant for both of them, well, you know, kind of a, a chance to be successful again. And they, and they were, but I think they both kind of resented having to do it and and resented each other a little bit for it. And that just increased as those films went on. And, you know, I, I've heard by the time they made Revenge of the Pink Panther, which was the last one, that they, they just despised each other so much that they, you know, could could never even dream of working together again. And so Sellers had developed a um, his own Pink Panther film that he was going to make after he, they kind of split mm. with, with Blake Edwards. Um, and... Uh, and I think Sidney Poitier was going to direct it at some point. It was called The Romance of the Pink Panther. And uh, and then, you know, you so you hear that. But but at the same time, Edwards had his first hit movie that wasn't a Pink Panther film in 1979 with 10. And Peter Sellers filmed a cameo for that film that was cut oh, out of oh, the I movie. I didn't realize that. Um, but... But Blake Edwards, you know, was obviously getting along with him well enough to invite right. him to the set and, right. and to participate. So, I don't know. It's a kind of a long way of saying, uh, you know, was he was he was he difficult? I'm sure he was. But you know, someone like Hal Ashby, who you know was a laid back, easygoing guy, got maybe the performance of Peter Sellers' career out of him with with with. Uh, being there and according to reports their relationship was perfect you know or close to perfect they just they got along great the shooting of the film was easy sellers got an oscar nomination um you know i think he was kind of uh his own worst enemy in terms of uh his career and the kind of directions it took um, yeah in terms of decisions i think he he made a lot of decisions that he that he regretted you know and i think ghost in the noonday sun was uh 
an opportunity to work with Spike Milligan again, who, you know, they had been on the, they had been on the Goon Show radio show, and which was, you know, hugely popular in the 50s right. in, in England. And, and I think this was more of a Spike Milligan shepherded project for a while. And Sellers wanted to do it with him. And Sellers seems to have brought Peter Maynack on board. And then, you know, as Peter Maynack... And then Milligan is not... And, and then Milligan is not involved at that point. And then he comes back. Then Sellers brings him, insists on bringing him in. And he sort of uh, arrives again sort of mid-shoot. Uh, I, right? And, right. And, and becomes... And if you see yeah. Ghost in the Noonday Sun, yeah. you notice that. Because Milligan's yeah. barely in the film. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, and I think, you know, maybe that bringing him back was a way for Sellers to kind of remind him of why he kind of agreed to do it in the first place and what kind of spirit he wanted to inject into the film. And he seems to have taken it out, not just on, um, not just on Peter Maydak, but also I guess the director of photography was forced to quit. Uh, Anthony Franciosa, one of the right. other co-stars, you started know. loving him and then wanted to kill him. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. They, they they stopped talking. You know, him. at the tw- yeah. <laughs> right, and I don't know how he felt yeah. about him afterwards. I I don't remember what the documentary said, but you know, they, it it it's really kind of one sour. The documentary is kind of one sour note after another, aimed at sellers, but it kind of ends on a note of you know, Madek feeling regret about the whole thing and disappointment. I mean, he, it's the movie starts out with that. That's the reason why he's making it. It's this source of guilt for his life, along with a lot of other things. And, and it seems to be all kind of laid at Peter Sellers' feet. And then at the end, it's he says, you know, oh, I, but I love the guy. And I'm trying to figure out, well, and they did, you know, and they did, he talks about how they yes. didn't make up. But, uh, you know, I just wonder about it all. It all seems kind of a... It's interesting to watch the film. I think it's, you know, it's fascinating to watch things fall apart. But I, I, ultimately, I think the movie says more about Peter Maydak than it does about Peter Sellers, which I... Yeah, and sure I, I totally intention. agree. And what I, and something I th- that I found really interesting about the documentary is that even though it's Peter Maydak making this documentary and appearing on screen and interviewing all these people that were associated with the production... Or Peter Sellers in one way or another. It's interesting to me that he leaves in a lot of interview footage with people where they're basically all saying to him, dude, get over it. And, you know, don't worry about it. And it's, yeah. <laughs> you know, it wasn't, the, it, it wasn't that big a deal. And, you know, this happens all the time in the movie business. And, you know, you, you, had, a, you had a full career before and afterwards. And what's the issue here? <laughs> it's a lot of it, which is kind yeah. of funny. It, it, Including and especially John Heyman, the producer, yeah. who's died since the the film was finished. But he, he seems to have been just as much a source of agitation for Maydak during the making of the film as Peter Sellers. You know, sending him letters and telling him he needs to get his star wrangled and, you know, and, you know, threatening with taking money away and getting him fired from the film. And, and you know... And Heyman kind of levels him with, you know, it's, it's that's the business. And, right. You know, the movie didn't work, and I'm, I'm just as much to blame because there was no, really, there was not a decent script that we went into production with, and right. and that was, um, that was what happened. Well, 
on the other hand, I will say that one of the other movies I watched this week was Hoffman, uh, which I had never seen. Oh, you and, did? Y- yes. And man, is that a creepy movie. <laughs> and, huh. um, and but in reading about Hoffman, you know, a lot of the same thing, a lot, you hear a lot of the same stories about Peter Sellers wanting to buy back the negatives when it was done, did not want it released, was very uncomfortable with it. Um, you know, and the, and then the people who are telling these stories all, all say they think it's because Hoffman, the character of Hoffman, Sellers, you know, unearthed his true persona, like, you know, the actual Peter Sellers in a, on screen in a way that he d- didn't ever in any other roles and was very uncomfortable with people seeing that real side of him. Now, I don't know if that's true, but but I, I was shocked at what a creepy... <laughs> What a creepy guy Hoffman is, and and the whole plot of this film is really kind of disturbing. Can you recount a little bit of it? Well, he, you know, it's weird because it starts in a very, it starts like mid, mid, not caper, but mid plot. Um, uh, he plays a guy who's who's who wants to sleep with his secretary. And has discovered that his secretary's boyfriend has done something illegal and has threatened to report the boyfriend to the police unless the secretary spends a romantic weekend with him. Hmm. And when the movie starts, she's arriving at his apartment for this romantic weekend. And so all of that backstory that I mentioned, you only learn sort of, you know, as the movie progresses but what's very clear from the beginning is that here's a guy who's brought his secretary to his apartment and is basically holding her prisoner and forcing her into this uh, romantic interlude, romantic in quotes, uh, interlude. And it's, and it's, you know, and it proceeds from there and she, and then of course she ends up seeing the softer side of him or realizes how lonely he is and ends up kind of falling for him. Um, but man, that movie does not play, <laughs> play, you know, and it does, it, I don't think it plays the way it was intended to play. And, and, and I think you might be right in terms of him worried about, you know, either, either reflecting what he felt was his actual self or just, you know, not wanting it to interfere with whatever image of him that was out there. And he, he kept it from release. You yeah, know, I, I just remembered what the other film was that didn't get released at the time. It was a, is a World War II uh, era movie called uh, The Blockhouse, where he and a bunch of international, uh, I think their allies, are trapped in a in a. Uh, I've seen the film. It's been almost twenty years since I've seen it, but they're trapped in a some kind of. Um, a cave or or some location during the war where the, the the walls have caved in around them and the, and the, and there's no way out and it's it's basically a bleak ultra bleak situation but it's not a bad film it's fairly compelling i think the, the real reason it wasn't released was cuz they they had problems with the soundtrack and mm. they were never able to get it right and it's a lot of the dialogue is um mm. indecipherable mm. when you when you see the film uh, they never did fix it. They, they finally released it on DVD and and put it out there. But um, you know that was the issue with that one. Well, but and I just bring up Hoffman as 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 uh, you know to build towards the case that that Sellers was 
indulging in this idea of like being forced into me or making a movie that he wasn't happy with and then his you know and then trying to get stop it from being released that it wasn't just the one-time thing with ghost and the noonday sun that there were a string of these these things or at least the two at least hoffman and ghost and the noonday sun yeah it's just this i think these kind of impulsive decisions that uh you know that he would make and then and then regret and then you know, try and make up for it, you know, and you see that in the, in the ghost of Peter Sellers when, when Madak talks about his reunion with Sellers five or six years after they've shot it and right. both their careers are back on track again. And, he, you know, and Sellers, to his credit, is the one who makes the move to, um, for a rapprochement, you know, yes. where they, he wants, he wants to, you know, kind of make up to Peter Madak and he, you know, he, kind of naively or or willfully ignorantly plays that you know oh it wasn't it wasn't you it was everybody else on the on the production but Madek remembers it differently and yet accepts his kind of overture of forgiveness and 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 then Sellers immediately starts talking about you know buying back the, the film and changing the narration and making it better I don't think there was any way to save Ghost in the Noonday Sun and I think right. Peter Madek knew it um, but, uh, you know, that, that was kind of his, his, his mode of operation. About 15 years ago, there was a summer retrospective of, uh, Peter Sellers films, the really good ones at George Eastman house. Now the George Eastman museum, where I was working as the curator of exhibitions uh, I did not organize a retrospective. It was organized by a colleague of mine, Michael Nault, and he brought in the films and Ed Sykoff, who wrote, uh, the, as, far, as far as I'm concerned, the best book on Peter Sellers called Mr. Strangelove, a really a good biography that kind of stands in contrast to the other ones that are out there that are a little more salacious. Mm-hmm. I think there was one called The Life and Death of Peter Sellers that they made into an HBO film with... Jeffrey Rush, which was really, you know, I guess, was only about Peter Sellers' dark side. Yeah. But you know, so much of so much of what's been written about Sellers is that you know he he felt, you know, oh, I don't really have a personality. I'm just I just I'm just uh, sink myself into my roles and and that's all I am. But Sykoff goes to a great length to say no, he had a personality, and it was exactly what we see Peter Madak talking about. This guy who you know had a big enough heart to, you know, want to do a film and hire somebody maybe as a favor for a friend, maybe because he felt it would be good for his career, and then had these immediate regrets and then would kind of, uh, you know, try and make up for it, you know, with grand gestures or favors or working again with another person, you know, working again with the same person he felt he had wronged. And then, you know, and of course things would get even worse. Mm Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, and Peter Sellers would always put that out there about himself. When, when he made uh, Mr. Topaz, he, you know, gave interviews and, and was saying, oh, you know, that's, I, I'm, it's easy for me to direct because, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I hide behind the camera as much as I hide in front of the camera. And, 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 and he, and he, you know, was put always putting that out there his whole career. Even on the, when he did, was the guest on the Muppet Show, he had an exchange with Kermit the Frog, where you know he was saying, 
you know, making jokes about it. There used to be me, but I had it surgically removed, you know, (laughs) Kermit, Kermit gulps and, and, you know, asked to change the subject. But um, I, I, I grabbed the copy of Sykoff's book and noted this one paragraph where Sykoff is writing about this appearance on The Muppet Show. And I think he kind of nails uh, who Sellers was off screen in this, in this one paragraph. Quote, in a minute, Kermit, or he says, in a minute, Kermit. Peter Sellers was terribly self-conscious about his lack of a self, and it must have been taxing to sustain such a robust contradiction. What does it mean to have no self if you yourself think you have none? Sellers had selves, just as everyone does. His were just more extravagant, and most of them were played out under lights and movies, television, and publicity photos. They were provisional, performative selves, and they popped up whenever the need for a particular one arose. His favorites were fictional, snapped on spontaneously, and crafted crafted over time. These selves made him a fortune and a lot of clever and successful friends who enjoyed his company. His least pleasant selves, the remorse-producing ones, were in a word, selfish, hungry, impulse-driven selves, bent on gratification at any cost. Expensive cars, beautiful wives, willing girlfriends, latest camera, compliant child. He had to have it, and he had to have it right away, and completing the performance, he had to let everyone know. Once he got it, of course, the selfish self faded away, satisfied but empty. Surgically removing that set of selves must have seemed less painful than living with them. End quote. Wow. I mean, I think it, I think it sums up a lot of the mystery about him. Um, that he wasn't this guy who had no personality. Um, he had personalities that I think he wanted to, that he didn't want the public to know about. Yeah. Um, and and so it was, you know, he would go around saying, you know, oh, I'm just, I have no personality. I'm just, I'm, I'm just, I'm able to put everything into these characters. Well, it's interesting. It's interesting that he describes himself, and and Herbert Lom describes him as sort of hands off. As a director, um, yeah, because I would love—I uh, don't know that there's anything like this available. I would love to see some behind-the-scenes footage of Sellers working out these elaborate slapstick sequences with Blake Edwards, either during the party or the Pink Panther movies, because. Uh, on the one hand, they look effortless, and that's what's so great about um, them as, as as slapstick sequences and farce. Um, but they clearly have an immense amount of labor and planning behind them. And I have always assumed and continue to assume that Peter Sellers is a major part of that planning and figuring out the choreography. Yes. And I would love to see what it was like on those sets as they were working out those incredibly elaborate sequences in the party and in and in the Pink Panther films. Well, you know, and you can see a little bit of that that immense part of his talent in the clips from Ghost in the Noonday Sun and in the Ghost of Peter Sellers. And even in Mr. Topaz, there are moments with that are clearly choreographed and thought out. So the one source I have on this is Edwards, Blake Edwards himself. 
And he was quoted as saying, and I think this was after Peter Sellers' death, that in his opinion, in Blake Edwards' opinion, and in he and Blake Edwards felt that Peter Sellers felt this way about himself, he didn't have the natural gifts of physical dexterity or the chops of Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, Jacques Tati. But Jerry Lewis. He adored them. Jerry Lewis, exactly. And even in terms of uh, recent terms, someone like Jim mm-hmm. Carrey. Um, but uh, he, he, while he didn't think of himself as being on their level, when it came to executing his comedy and choreographing those sequences that you're talking about, he did constantly think in those terms. This is how Edwards describes it. He's always thinking about how those guys would do it and 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 why and and, and he even had a, nat, a what Edwards said was a natural tendency to think in those terms and he was able to express himself obviously communicate with whoever was directing or whoever he was co-starring with to make those bits happen and so you don't you don't see the kind of maybe extravagant stunts that a Buster Keaton would pull off and oftentimes sellers i think in those pink panther films is using a stunt double but um he was always thinking about comedy and how to put a physical spin on it no matter how subtle or how broad in in every scene and that could be the way he you know muttered something under his breath which is you know goes on a lot in his films and you and a lot in ghost in the noonday sun yeah. Or it could be the way, you know, he just puts on a hat, you know, like I think you see that in Mr. Topaz or or dances around a character in order to avoid seeming to be clumsy, only to have, of course, you know, a bigger disaster happen. And you see that in the party, which I think is, uh, you know, I mean, aside from, I guess, Dr. Strangelove and, and, and being there, I think it's it's my favorite Peter Sellers film. It's it's, you know. A very sweet performance, uh, even if it's even if it's a film that uh, a lot of people would object to. Uh, in that he's uh, he he kind of you know Peter Sellers reveled in these Asian uh, caricatures. We could say he he played uh, Indian characters a couple of times sure. and, and 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 Chinese characters several. Well, times. right. I mean, he and there's the brown face element to that film. That's exactly. But it's, but yeah. it's amazing. That's another film I went back to this week. It's amazing how well that film works, even with all of that baggage. Um, and it was yeah. also. I agree with you that I do feel it might be their pinnacle, Blake Edwards and and Sellers, at least as a team. I had, I had I was a, I grew up. Uh, seeing I, I, the first Pink Panther movie I got to see in a the theater was Return of the Pink Panther, and then saw all the later ones in mm-hmm. theaters, uh, and of course saw saw the first two um, on TV, uh, and and grew up loving those movies. And watching both The Party and Return of the Pink Panther this week, I was surprised to realize, oh, The Party is a better movie than Return of the Pink Panther, and the 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 comp the comedic sequences are better. Return of the Pink Panther, I still think, is yes. great, but the party is a step above. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, the party has heart, right? I mean, he's a very sweet, lovable yeah. character, um, and it's interesting. 
the, the you know the other bit of reading I was doing that the movie that really launched him as an international star is a film that's not very well remembered today, but it was a romantic comedy with him and uh, Sophia Loren. Sophia, yeah, the millionaire called the millionaires, right. which where he plays another Indian yes. character. Yes, and so he was, uh, you know, kind of returning to familiar territory with the party. Yeah, and let's just say that there isn't anything that is more overtly stereotypical about these Indian characters he played than his Inspector Clouseau or many other of right. these characters. They're, they're, they're all pitched at about the same level of sort of indulging in stereotypes and but you know but also infusing them with heart and soul and 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 making them all sort of believable characters no matter what their sort of ethnic or you know national backgrounds yes are. yeah um and uh you know uh, for sure except except for um Unfortunately, his Blue final Man performance. Too, yeah. <laughs> you know, and there's and there's Peter Sellers in a nutshell again, right? He comes off a movie he'd been trying to get made for better part of a decade, being there, total triumph. Critics love it, Oscar nomination, and uh, I mean, he didn't know he was going to die, I'm sure, but you know, he dies in July of 1980, and two weeks later, his last film is released, yeah. or at least the last film he consciously participated in not uh, counting trail of the pink panther yeah uh, is a movie called the fiendish plot of dr fu manchu which is a just a colossal embarrassment of a film uh again he's playing multiple characters he plays both fu manchu and full stereotypical uh splendor and uh and he also plays nalan smith who is the sex roamers uh, detective who was always doggedly pursuing Fu Manchu. Well, I started reading about The Millionaires, getting back to that film, um, and was delighted to discover these two songs that I had never heard. Um, oh, Goodness Gracious Goodness Me. Goodness Gracious Me, and then it's follow-up. Did you know that they, that Sellers and Loren did a follow-up single called Bang- no. Bangers and Mash? Um, maybe I'll <laughs> play a little of it on the podcast for you at this point. That's um, great. Yeah, where he's not doing the Indian character, he's doing like sort of a Cockney accent, and he's and and in this novelty song, she's playing his, she plays his wife, and he's complaining that all she ever serves him is Italian food, and he all he really wants is a good dish of bangers and mash. Um, it's pretty great, and so is goodness gracious me, actually. Yeah, they're they're fun. Well, maybe we can do a a blog page where we oh, yeah. put those up, and sure. we can also put the Benson and Hedges commercial uh, in full that you see some clips of in Ghost of Peter Sellers, where Peter Madak was recruited by Sellers and Spike Milligan to make a cigarette commercial in the middle of making Ghost in the Noonday Sun. And uh, <laughs> well, what's, should we and say what's Spike great Milligan about it? Seems, that, that, yeah. that 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 they were all involved with anti-smoking campaigns at the time and quitting smoking and so none of them would touch the product during this commercial which they didn't tell medac until they got on set right right which just you know adds to medac's list of sometimes justifiable uh complaints (laughs) that one seemed particularly justified what a crazy story that was you know peter medac is admittedly 
working out of a, a small sense of desperation on Ghost in the Noonday Sun, even though he's coming off of his highest profile movie, which was a, a 1972 satire called The Ruling Class, which was a a big uh, movie for Peter O'Toole. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm, it was the film that you know got Peter Sellers interested in hiring Maydeck as the director of this film. He He talks about having just had another child and you know really needing the money and 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 doing the film so his you know his reasons for doing the film are not uh totally uh virtuous you know but but he's honest about it in the in the film um do we want to talk a little bit about uh mr topaz or did you have something yeah well but i just wanted to point out one other parallel with um or maybe a few with between sellers and jerry lewis jerry lewis also in this same general time frame famously shot a movie and then decided not to release it although lewis um after dipping his toe in the directorial waters never took it out of the water and and continued to direct movies for a, a good chunk of his his career um and um i think that's an interesting difference between the two of them i also think they're two they are two guys who um you know in a certain sense as as acclaimed as they were and as famous as they were probably never got the sort of respect that i feel they both probably deserved as actors because they were acting in a comedic tone and that's always sort of been this there's always been this stigma attached um you know, and even though Sellers was up for a few Academy Awards, you know, I think you look at his stuff now and you think, wow, how did this guy not have even more acclaim yeah. and sort of respect within the filmmaking world? He he tried stretching out a little bit early on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he he was only making British films basically until the early, late 50s when, you know, there were some Hollywood co-productions that were shot in Europe. Were you able to watch Never Let Go? I did, and I thought uh, that was a, a really good movie, um, and I and I, and he was uh, appropriately sort of terrifying. As yeah, the, he's as the really film. scary. In fact, when you were describing the plot of Hoffman, mm-hmm. uh, it almost reflects a little bit his relationship off screen with Carol White, who played both. Yeah. Uh, well, I should say on screen and off screen because apparently he. Um, was a little rough on her uh, off screen as well as well as on, and then they, they ended up having an affair, I think. But um, well, that's true. You know, I didn't think of that, but the situation that his characters are in in both those movies with with a younger woman are are, are very similar, and that's sort of he almost sort of has them as prisoners in his apartments, and both in in both in Never Let Go and yeah. And, we uh, we should talk about the Never Let Go for a second. It's a it's a f- pretty compelling film directed by John uh, Guillermin, who yeah. who later you know did some of the biggest blockbusters of the seventies, like the King Kong remake that Dino yeah. De Laurentiis produced and the Towering Inferno. Never directed any James Bond films, but I'm sure he did some Bond knockoff movies. Um, yeah, but, he uh, totally would have been the perfect Bond director back yeah. in the seventies. Very competent, you know, uh, workmanlike uh, director. Um, and and Never Let Go is a very good thriller. And and this is something I realized about it. 
it is um, it's 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 Richard Todd as a as a working class well not working class but a middle class guy who's you know having trouble making ends meet who loses his car which is his his lifeline it's been stolen by uh, a gang of teenagers who deliver to a crime lord who runs a chop shop who's played by Peter Sellers and uh, he's quite a menacing figure in the film but the movie Never Let Go which I recommend for people to check out is situa- situated exactly 11 years uh, after British audiences would have seen uh, De Sica's uh, Bicycle Thieves and 11 years before Sam Peckinpah's Straw Dogs, which was also filmed in England. And it's the movie is pretty much <laughs> both those films mixed together. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's Bicycle Thieves meets Straw Dogs with a, you know, a, a really great violent confrontation at the end between Sellers and Richard Todd. Yeah, very interesting shades of gray in that movie as opposed to other sort of noir films at that time where, you know, you're, you're really not, like, the Richard Todd character is hard to like for a lot of this movie. Um, he, he's not, he's not, you know, he, he, he is like somebody who's not a natural tough guy. Right. Challenged he, in his masculinity by his right. wife. And, it, and it, you, he sort of frustrates audience expectations throughout much of the movie. Like, when is this guy going to explode? <laughs> when is right. he, he going to... Or when is he going to snap out of it? Because right. it's one or the other. But he's in this limbo of like desperately wanting to get his car back and really allowing all these people around him to get either killed or <laughs> injured. And uh, Yeah. Uh, Including I, himself, I loved seeing Mervyn Johns. Is that his name? Uh, from uh, as the older uh, newspaper uh, peddler. Uh, yeah, he's very good. He, I, I've loved him since Dead of Night, where he is the sort of main protagonist of that, of the sort of overarching like connective tissue story. He's That's the architect right. Who arrives right. at this at this weird cottage for the weekend? But um, yeah, great, great. Great, great actor and a and a wonderful little performance in Never Let Go. Yeah, and the other thing Sellers had was you know loyalty towards all these people. I'm not I'm mm-hmm. not sure what his history with Mervyn Johns was, but the guy who plays his main henchman, David Lodge, was one of his oldest friends and someone he employed frequently in productions that he was hired to appear in. Uh, and also, there's an actor who's in a ton of movies with Sellers. In fact, I think maybe. One or two of the earlier Pink Panther movies named John Le Masurier. That's the guy who, I was focused on. I actually yeah. pulled up his wiki because I was like, I love this guy. And he's been in so many of these Peter Sellers movies. Yeah, so many. And uh, he's the he's the department store uh, uh, magnet. And he just has one scene and never yes. let go. Well, he, came, he comes up uh, recently because the... Is that the name of Hugh Grant's character, or actually the actual person in he played in a very British scandal, uh, the Stephen Frears miniseries uh, that was a couple years ago? And and in the in the movie they talk <laughs> to, yeah. not to confuse him with the actor John Lemassurier. I can't. No, no, no. It's just, there's a there's a there's a underworld figure that he's involved with that uh, who has the same name and. Uh, 
I remember. Anyway, he's if if you see the actor John Lemassurier's face, chances are you've seen him in in many. Wow, movies. he did a ton of TV, a ton of theater, a ton of radio, and then a ton of film. This guy. I mean, huh. was he ever on the Goon Show? He, he might have. Uh, yeah, but he like for instance, in 1959, he's got screen credits in one, two, three, four, five, six. 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 films that were released in wow. 1959. Amazing. Those guys are workhouses. Well, so should we talk a little bit about the bonus feature for this week? Sure. Mr. Topaz? Let's do it. <laughs> so, uh, it's based on a play by Marcel Pagnol and the Cinematheque. We ran uh, Pagnol's trilogy uh, based on three other plays he wrote. Uh, that was, was that three summers ago, I guess? So the play was translated and uh, turned into two screen versions in 1933 alone one in france and one in the u.s that was made at rko with john barrymore and in that film which was directed by uh harry darast it's uh the play is shortened and uh turned into a much more kind of brisk fleet 80 minute pre-code kind of romp. It's a very entertaining film with John Barrymore as uh, Mr. Topaz, who, uh, how, how, how can we describe the, the, the plot of the play? Basically, he's a meek school teacher who... Milk toast. A milk toast <laughs> who uh, is, uh, nonetheless, has integrity about his job as a teacher and wants to instill ethics and good values in his in his students um, and pays the price for uh, holding all of his students to the same standards is fired and gets a job working for a corrupt magnate who kind of um, s seduces him maybe not so knowingly into uh, a world of corporate uh, greed and corruption and transforming uh, Topaz into uh, something the opposite of, of what he once was. Now, in the, in the John Barrymore film in 1933, it has a much more kind of uh, light ending where uh, uh, I, don't, I don't think we feel so am ambiguously, I think we feel a little ambiguous about Topaz, you know, that maybe he's not... Uh, fully immersed in the corruption, maybe not such a bad guy. But in the in the in the play and in the Peter Sellers film, we see the full transformation where this character is, you know, not a monster, but someone who uh, someone who's fully embraced the fact that, or who fully believes that you can only get ahead by by being crooked. Yeah, and if we take his friend, I forget that actor's name, Michael Goff. Michael Goff, who's fantastic in this movie, um, just a great actor. But if we take him as the sort of moral barometer of the, an ethical barometer of the film, I mean, the, the film ends with them having a falling out. So yes. I think we're supposed to. It's interesting you say that because that's the end of the film. 
Um, but the play, which is the, the movie is otherwise pretty faithful to, ends with Mr. Topaz offering his friend, the Michael Goff character, uh, a job to come work for him. And even though the Michael Goff character makes a speech against corruption and, and Mr. Topaz's crookedness, he's not above accepting a position working for huh. him. And he t- accepts it. Um, huh. that, is, that is not the ending of, of the Peter Sellers film. No. So uh, that was one change. I don't know if that was a change Sellers made or if that was something the scriptwriter did. But, um, you know, Sellers was enjoying now this international success as an actor. This was after The Millionaires and The Mouse That Roared, which was a, another international success where that had him for the first time playing multiple characters in a movie. Um, and, uh, you know, like, like, like a lot of stars and actors, he wanted to do it all. So he took on the task of directing this script, which was set to go into production. And according to Herbert Lom and Billy Whitelaw, who uh, plays kind of sort of one of his romantic interests in the film, um, Billy Whitelaw, of course, um, famous as Samuel Beckett's muse, but also the the nanny in The Omen. Um, yes, <laughs> said said that uh, you know he was he was perfectly pleasant to to work with on this film, and that he was very supportive of the other actors. Um, and Herbert Lom backed her up in this and said the same thing, but at the same time was was kind of hands-off in directing the actors and giving them any specific instructions and kind of hands-off on every other aspect of the film, too. Um, You know, delegating decisions to be made independently by the producers and by the cinematographers and, and, Mm -hmm. and everything else and didn't really have much, you know, care in putting the whole movie package together. And, and I gotta say, it kind of shows Well, I was going to say that regardless of the strengths and weaknesses of this film, it feel it it seems obvious throughout that this isn't really a passion project of Peter Sellers. He doesn't he's certainly not creating a signature role for himself in this film. He's he's not he doesn't bring that much to the table even to the point where it's interesting to me that a guy who okay, a little bit later on would become as well known for his French accent as anyone in the history of French accents, the, the greatest French caricature, <laughs> right? Yeah. Chooses not to have anyone speak with, a, or maybe a few of the actors too, but I can't the film remember. Taking place yeah. in France with French characters, they don't speak with French accents. They all no, speak with British it, accents. Uh, it it takes a while to uh, to recognize exactly where we are. Yeah, um, but. Uh, yeah, and maybe 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 Clouseau was an attempt to kind of make up for that. <laughs> you know, it's it it seems that it seems that uh, it was you know just an attempt to kind of um, see if he could raise do his, it, I guess. yeah, see if he could do it, raise his portfolio. Hmm. Uh, he also apparently was paid a considerable amount to direct and star. Okay. Uh, he got. Uh, 75,000 pounds for both worlds, which is a pretty substantial amount in 1961. And uh, was, you know, and, and, and was able to do it. But he was, um, I think, embarrassed by the film or, or at least recognized that 
it didn't it didn't work um and you know the reviews were kind of tepid and and um he uh gave his print of the film to the british film institute they had two release prints and the production company you'll see the 20th century fox logo at the beginning of the film but it was not a fox production it was just released by them and uh so they didn't they didn't weren't able to preserve any of the elements and whoever the production company or whatever the production company was uh the the rights were 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 lost and no one seemed to take care of the elements and so all that was left were one 16 millimeter print and two 35 millimeter prints uh that were housed at the british film institute and if you were a researcher like ed sykoff when he wrote his peter sellers biography you could go to the bfi and they'd run the print for you but it was you know like most release prints of the of the time uh it was uh released on uh, an Eastman color stock, which was uh, a color that faded, at least the the blues and the yellows faded from the print. So you were left with uh, a bunch of reds and pinks and whites and and the whole color palette. So they now with digital color correction, they were able to restore the film, I, I guess, to its what they assumed was its original color palette, although they didn't have any direct references to work with. So I think they were probably just looking at other yeah. color prints of the day and trying to, to, to get it to look it's a pretty, uh, as close it's a to possible. It's a pretty brown and gray-looking film, but but a, but a very nice restoration, I think. It, it, it looks clean and crisp. Yes. Um, but, not, but if you're looking for a large color palette, this is not the movie to watch. No. It's not. Uh, it's not the party. It doesn't yeah. have the the colors of the party, yeah. the the pastels of that film. So later on, I guess when 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 people would bring up the fact that Sellers, oh, you directed once, he would he would deny it. He would say, <laughs> no, I've never I've never directed a movie. Mm. Um, and according to what you know, Herbert Lom has said, maybe he was right. <laughs> maybe he never really he didn't really consider what he did to be direction. This is a movie that. You know, was was well cast and I guess kind of directed itself. And I should say, as you said about Sellers' performance in Ghost in the Noonday Sun, it's a it's a fully committed performance. Uh, it's not, you know, it's it doesn't have the kind of outrageousness of Clouseau or Rundi V. Bakshi or Doctor Strangelove, but it's uh, it's um, it's a fine physical performance. He does some nice little physical bits, and there's you know. There's some things. It's just not. It's it's not the most committed movie overall, and so you 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 watch it and you and you you might kind of forget it. But it's a it's a nice piece of of uh, film history, and will satiate your curiosity of the, what the what the one film Peter saw is direct directed. I'm very like. glad I saw it. It's very watchable. It's uh, certainly worth your time to take it take a look. I would say. I agree. But what's what's what, what, maybe we should end with discussing your your favorite Peter Sellers film? Do you okay? Do you well, this is, I maybe? was going to pose this question to you. Um, okay, um, go ahead. Which is that if you, and I started playing this game with a with a few actors, and it's not a fair question, I don't think, and maybe not an answerable question. But if you could associate Peter Sellers with only one film, uh, which you consider his iconic signature performance. Um, I think there are legit arguments for Dr. Strangelove uh, being there and 
I, this is also cheating, but I suppose any of the Pink Panther films. Um, but do you? Are, is there right. room for another? Uh, and, and I would say that my personal favorite are the Pink Panther movies. But you know, if I'm trying to be more objective, I would I might pick one of the other two: Strange Love or Being There. But are there others to add to that list in your mind? I love Being There. I love the two Kubrick films. I think he's great in mm-hmm. Lolita too. And you know, and we should. Lolita needs is to be thought of in that group of Peter Sellers movies where he plays multiple characters because you know he's he's Quilty, but Quilty is right. You know, I think what what Peter Sellers wanted to think wanted us to think of as himself as this guy who doesn't really have an identity. He just has a number of different identities that he can call up at any time, including um, Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> yes, I'm right. He's imitating Kubrick in, in the opening scene. Um, but it's um, you know I like both those films quite a bit. I think they're they're fine films. My, I love I love. But I love, wait, let me just talk to let me just say this about Lolita. Yeah. Like I think for the sake of my dopey hypothetical, I feel like Lolita has to be considered James Mason's movie. And sure. So sure. I or, wouldn't or, pick that or, as or my one signature. Yeah. yeah. But um, but as an actor, no, you, you could right. You couldn't pick it, and you could you could you could say Strange Love because it's you know the, it's exemplary of his um, desire to take on multiple roles and play different characters, and and we need to remember that he was supposed to play the Slim Pickens part too, but had uh, one of the many uh, I think it was a, one of the heart attacks that sidelined him throughout his career and eventually killed him, and was unable to do that part as well. Um, and uh, you know Clouseau is great, and and a shout out for me. I know you were a big return of the Pink Panther fan, but uh, Pink Panther Strikes Again is true lunacy. I mean that is a just I mean wildly cartoony movie that that yeah, and and interestingly, sort of the culmination of his on screen career with Herbert Lom. Uh, all sort of comes together for that final scene with them in the castle and the melting nose. Yes. Uh, it's fantastic. Yeah, the series could have easily ended there, but they decided to bring back... Uh, <laughs> they decided to bring back Dreyfus from uh, his oblivion at the end of Pink Panther Strikes Again for Revenge of the Pink Panther. Um, oh, that's right. And, yeah. and and being there is just, a you know again, a wonderful movie. Great performance in... Very big movie with me too. I I I thought it was the first Peter Sellers movie I saw in the theater, but I was reminded looking at his filmography that the summer, the movie he made, the other movie he made that was released in 1979 is The Prisoner of Zenda, uh, one of many versions of that uh, swashbuckler where he plays mm-hmm. two or three roles in the film. I can't remember, uh, and I remember liking it at the time, but I I I don't see much love for that film out there. And, when I was 10 years old, but um, but being there was a film I went to see twice. I mean, it really captured my my uh, my fascination, and uh, and it is a movie that really holds up well today. But you know, if I'm going to if I'm going to a desert island and I'm only allowed one Peter Sellers movie, I'm, I'm taking the party. I mean, it's. You know, it's it's like you said. It's it it has all that physical. You know, it has him has him at his physical um, best. You see him just doing so much, so many brilliantly choreographed things. I mean, obviously, the movie owes a great deal to Tati. 
Yeah. Um, you know, especially in the, the, the kind of silent aspects of it. But it's 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 a, it's a movie where you you know you really love Peter Sellers. I mean, almost you know none of the characters in any of the other films, including Clouseau, are totally lovable. You know, Clouseau's an arrogant jerk. You know, yeah, uh, who's a who's a you know a complete fool who thinks he's you know the great the world's greatest detective. Yeah, um, but. Um, but Bak- I would say Bakshi, my, the character he plays in the party, is yeah, it's totally lovable. No, he absolutely is. I think my my if I have an, any issue other than the sort of like um, sort of politically correct issues to have, that one should have with the party. Yeah, uh, my issue with the party is more that I feel like the comedic climax of the film is either the dinner scene. Like the part where they're at the right. table, right. or maybe I think I think it's a little later on that he goes to the he's, he needs to use the bathroom and he winds up in the upstairs bathroom, yeah, and uh, and has a great bit with the with with the toilet and also the toilet paper roll which he sort of pulls at and then it yes. <laughs> stands there as it unspools. I, I uh, agree with you. By the time you have all the soap bubbles and the elephants coming on, it's, yeah, it's he, we too sort much. of lose track of sellers in the last 15, 20 yeah. minutes of that movie. Yeah. And it becomes all the hippie kids and the elephant and that stuff is not as yeah. funny. And it's weird that the movie, that that's where it ends yeah. climaxes yeah. no i mean i would never say that uh as a film the party is better than um uh dr strange love or even uh the other blake edwards films i you know i'd say shot in the dark is pretty darn perfect and uh and pink panther strikes again yeah. is probably you know a better directed better sustained movie but uh, i just have a great love for the party um yeah. Despite its its you know as you say, politically incorrect aspects. I'll just mention that the movie that I finally caught up with this week in prepping prepping to talk to you uh, that I really loved was uh, I'm All Right Jack, and mm. and and really loved Sellers in that movie. Um, even though he's that's another movie where though his character is made fun of and he's wrongheaded and he's kind of ridiculous he's like the shop steward uh, yeah and in, in, in a sort union of, in, a, in a in a comedy that makes fun of both unions and you know corporate n- corporate interest, interests yeah. um he is he's pretty lovable in that film well and a final note you would be interested to know that not too long before his death uh in 1980, he was interviewed and uh, pressured to name his favorite films. He was reluctant, but he said four movies. I'm All Right, Jack, Dr. Strangelove, The Party, and Being There. Yeah, that's, so that's a good list. He's, he's, in, he's in sync with at least our tastes, I think. Yeah. So there's Peter Sellers, and this was fun. I had a great time watching these movies and then talking to you about them. Always informative. Same here. We should probably also uh, give one more plug for Never Let Go. It's You really want to see Sellers as an actor. He's uh, magnificently menacing in that movie. Yeah, he really is. And and different than... than it's certainly a very distinctive character, the way his character 
has this nasty grin on his face for yeah. much of the movie. And yeah. feels like, you know, he's trying to portray friendliness, but you see through it at every stage, which is exactly how it should be. Smiling as he's whacking you across the face. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Thank you, Jim. I met her down in Napoli and didn't she look great? And so I brought her back to Blighty just to show me mates. And though we're married happily, I'll tell you furthermore, I haven't had a decent meal since 1944. Eat your minestrone, Joe. That's all you ever sang. Eat your macaroni, Joe. Every blinking time. No wonder you're so bony, Joe, and skinny as a rake. Well, then give us a bash at the bangers and mash me mother used to make. Bangers and mash. Minestrone. Bangers and mash. Macaroni. Give us a bash at the bangers and mash me mother used to make. 